Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and what a surprise. Once again, we have an amazing guest on the show. We have Dr. Torben, who is an associate professor in chemical engineering. First chemical engineer on the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Torben. Uh, hi, Amelia, and thank you for having me. Surprised I'm the first chemical engineer, but okay, pressure's on. The pressure, eight, that yes, you're representing all of chemical engineering right now. But no, I've just had so many scientists and scientists are wonderful, but there's a lot in engineering as well. So we need to get the balance back into STEM. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? Well, that's a good question, to be honest. <laughs> I think uh, I'm an associate professor in chemical engineering. So I do a little bit of teaching and I run my research group here. So we've got a, a research group that is looking into uh, various processes, mostly looking at carbon dioxide reutilization, uh, basically turning carbon dioxide into benign forms that can be either used or stored. And I'm also doing a lot of work on nanoelectronics. So it's a bit of an interesting mix, I guess, but uh, we can probably get into that a little bit into more detail later on. I also run the PhD program and the uh, master's program in the chemical engineering department at RMIT. So basically, as my job, I, I do sort of a mix of research, running my research group, doing a bit of teaching and running that PhD program. So uh, looking after our PhD students. That's a pretty, I guess, disparate group of things to be doing, like managing students versus doing your own research. I feel like you'd have to be fairly organized to be able to keep on top of all of that. I think I should be organized, but unfortunately I'm not. <laughs> so I, it's a struggle, but it's actually not as bad as it sounds. My uh, my PhD students, they're luckily very independent and brilliant. So uh, they mostly look after themselves and I help them, of course. And we, we work together towards basically our papers and uh, their careers, of course. And in terms of the uh, PhD program management here, uh, I've got meetings with students whenever there's issues, meet with them, support them and help them out. That's basically what I'm doing. So your research sounds quite cool. Although I am incredibly curious about how you combine CO2 reutilization and nanoelectronics, because to me, they're quite different things. Are you doing the same project with them? Or are they just two things that you're like, these things are cool, and I'm going to study them? To be honest, I actually uh, left out probably the uniting factor between the two things, the brief uh, description. So for the past few years, I've been actually looking at a class of materials that is called molten or liquid metals. So we're looking at uh, materials or metals that have very low melting points. So they typically melt. Some of them are liquid at room temperature, and they're specially designed alloys that melt anywhere between room temperature and maybe 300 degrees Celsius. And as a chemical engineer, my, my background in the past was uh, more focused on electronic materials. So we use these molten metals to synthesize nanomaterials and uh, electronic materials. And uh, more recently, we also discovered that these materials are excellent catalysts. 
And we found uh, that they're very efficient at uh, taking the carbon dioxide molecule and pulling it apart and turning it into carbon and oxygen, which is uh, pretty cool. So we are really mostly looking at these molten metal type materials and use them for different applications. So that's uh, the main thing we do. I mean, it still sounds like something out of sci-fi, but it does make a bit more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> How did you find that out? Like, you're playing with a liquid metal, which obviously is very cool. And I'm imagining that, like, for the listeners, the main kind of liquid metal you might have come across is mercury, maybe, if for some reason you're quite retro and you had a mercury thermometer or something, or one of the switches. Very cool looking, don't touch, obviously. But... How did you go from experimenting with those, you know, making some really, really cool nano stuff and then uncover that it does stuff to CO2? Yeah. So the material, first of all, our alloys are actually not mercury. So they look like mercury, but they're not mercury. Uh, so we mostly work with an element called gallium, which melts at about 30 degrees Celsius. It's one of the less known elements in the periodic table, but it's really cool. So on a hot day, it's actually liquid and it's non-toxic. So that's a good thing. Basically, throughout my career, I worked on different topics. So during my PhD, I was working on sort of electronic materials for photovoltaics and then had a bit of a, a play when I moved over to RMIT with ultra thin materials, 2D materials for electronics. So that's all stuff that is similar to graphene and so on. And in that sort of larger research group, there were a few students there that were working with these molten metals. And that was sort of a hobby pet project of the professor that was leading that group. And I ignored it for several years. And then I sort of learned a little bit more about it and then uh, realized that one of the students was complaining that whenever they were playing with the liquid metal, it would leave these very, very thin layers or stains on surfaces when they were uh, sort of working with it. And they were actually complaining about it because uh, it created a mess. Then we started to look into these sort of materials that are left behind and then learned that these materials are actually essentially naturally occurring 2D materials. So when I say that they are very, very thin, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, five to 10 atoms thin. So they're very, very thin materials that are just naturally left behind. If you take a droplet of molten metal and you let it roll over a surface, it just leaves these very, very thin layers of materials. And because of my research interest back then, I said like, oh, like a bulb, light bulb moment there. And I said, look, uh, these are 2D materials and we can use them for electronics. And we did that for a while and published a bunch of papers. And yeah, uh, that was pretty successful work, I think, in terms of for an academic, you know, published a whole bunch of papers on these in, in nice journals. And then later on, we sort of were looking for something else. And we were thinking maybe we can actually use these materials as well for catalysis, because catalysis is also a surface phenomenon. And then looked at that and... Uh, decided to have a bit of a play with carbon dioxide and it turned out that it worked really nicely. And that's how we ended up here. You make it all sound very lighthearted and like there's just a bunch of people having a play with some stuff in a lab and, oh, it just happens to be awesome. It sounds very cool. Well, I mean, that's, that's actually how it often happens. So a lot of these discoveries are made over a cup of coffee or, you know, sometimes in the pub, not that often, but sometimes. <laughs> You come up with different ideas and try things. I mean, that is the whole 
in my opinion, that the appeal of doing academic research is uh, that you can play with cool materials and you don't have a line manager breathing down your neck and saying, you've got to produce and I want to make money. So sometimes you actually still get the chance to just play with materials and figure out what they do. And then you get inspiration and maybe turn it into something useful. Okay. So this liquid metal, which I'm now imagining like a snail and a very cool 2D material, that is doing something to CO2, manipulating it in some way. What are you hoping to do with the output? Yes. So the output in the end, uh, or maybe I can talk a little bit about how this works and why we actually have to use a liquid metal. That's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> so basically what I said before is that when you take the liquid metal, you let it roll over a surface, it leaves behind these oxide sheets, which we can turn into semiconductors. The reason why that happens is that the surface of that molten metal is basically repellent to anything else that is non-metallic. So anything that uh, exists on the surface of a molten metal is very weakly attached. And uh, that means when we take our metal and let it oxidize in air, the native oxide that grows on it, when you just expose it to air, you can just peel it off. Great for our electronics. So when it comes to uh, catalysis, typically people do catalysis in uh, the gas phase or in the liquid phase. Uh, so typically in industrial catalysis, you have, let's say, a platinum catalysts or something like that. And you put some gases that you let flow over the catalyst and you do something to it. And then you end up either with a liquid or with another gas. And uh, the reason for that is that if you would make something solid, it would grow on the surface of your platinum particle and would just stick there and gum it up. And then that's the end of your catalyst. Uh, that's a real problem in, in industry. So a lot of the industrial processes we use they really struggle with deactivation. So where you just get a solid buildup and it gums up your process. Now, having learned about this problem that solid materials stick to your catalyst, we have thought that if you've got a liquid catalyst, anything solid that you're producing does not really have a lattice to grab onto. So it's a little bit like uh, trying to take a chewing gum, which is gummy, and trying to stick it to a glass of water, to the water. So obviously it wouldn't stick. And that is a process that we are taking advantage of here. So we created a liquid catalyst. So it's still metallic. Metals are usually good catalysts. So we've got this metallic catalyst, but it's liquid. And uh, it doesn't have a solid surface. So anything solid that is grown on it can't grab onto anything and it will just flow off. Or worst case scenario, you can just run it through a filter and you know, you've got your catalyst back. And uh, that was the idea that we came up with, and it actually worked really nicely. And then what does the catalyst do to our carbon dioxide when we uh, bring it into contact? The metal reacts with the carbon dioxide, and you basically turn the carbon dioxide into solid carbon flakes. So these are sort of graphene-like carbon sheets that you are producing, and metal oxide. So... It's not a true catalyst in a way that uh, because the metal will get oxidized. But the good thing is you can just regenerate the metal. So basically, in a reaction cycle, you would react your metal with your carbon dioxide. You produce a bit of carbon and metal oxide. And then you 
do a second step where you turn the metal oxide back into metal and then you can just repeat it. So it turns then into a catalytic cycle and you can just go on and on and on, slowly turning the CO2 into solid carbon. And that solid carbon, uh, you can then, well, either use it. I mean, it's a high surface area carbon material. So these are quite valuable. So you can turn it into batteries. You can turn it into building materials. You can put it into concrete as a filler. So replace some of the sand in concrete, for example. Or worst case scenario, if you're running out of all of the options, you can just turn it into a pallet and put it back into the ground. So that's the idea. Obviously, in a world where we want to get rid of some of the extra carbon dioxide we've got floating around, that sounds like a really good idea. What kind of scale are we talking about that you can do this at? Like, are we talking about you've got maybe five mils of this liquid metal and or we've got like hundreds of liters somewhere? Yeah. So at the moment, we're still working on relatively lower scales or small scales. So we actually just had a paper coming out at the beginning of the week. And there's a little video out there as well on the on this in our, uh, we had a little press release. So I don't know, I can can share that or you can have a, have a look for that. RMIT CO2, it probably comes up. And uh, at the moment, our process is relatively small scale. So we work with a little tube, which is a lot like a, a reaction tube, really. So it's uh, maybe about uh, the thickness of a finger or, or a thumb. And uh, we've got a few mils of our liquid metal in there, maybe 10 mil, 15 mil, something like that. And we just let the CO2 bubble through it. And if you would let that run for a few hours, you would end up with sort of a, a small teaspoonful of carbon. So you actually get carbon. So it's, you can see it, you can hold it in your hand, you can, can do stuff with it. And now the exciting thing is that we actually just partnered up with a company in the uh, concrete business that wants us to upscale it. So hopefully in the next few years, we are going to turn this into a much, much bigger operation. So at the moment, uh, our little reactor, I call it the shoebox because that's roughly the size of it at the moment. And uh, we want to turn that into a, maybe at some point like a fridge or a shipping container at some point, and then uh, use that to decarbonize a cement operation and uh, see if we can do something with that. Which would be very good for a bunch of reasons, including, of course, that we're actually running out of sand. So. Okay, so this all sounds very cool, very like future hopeful, all that sort of stuff. What does it actually take to make this metal? How do you do it? And I guess how much carbon and energy is embedded in creating the metal? Of course. At the moment, we're working mostly with gallium and gallium-based alloys. So gallium at the moment is actually a waste product from the zinc production. It's quite a common element. So it's not really rare. It's also not super common, but it's sort of in the middle in terms of its abundancy. And the main problem at the moment is that there's not a lot of applications for gallium. So at the moment, gallium is mostly used in the semiconductor industry to make gallium nitride, gallium arsenide uh, semiconductors for high performance electronics. Because it is hardly used for, for anything, uh, the price is pretty high. So at the moment, uh, most of the gallium uh, is being produced as a side product from the zinc mining process and from the aluminum mining process. But uh, most of the gallium at the moment would be essentially thrown away as uh, without being processed. So it's just uh, thrown away as a waste product in mine tailings. 
And we hope that if these processes take off, that maybe uh, people will start to produce it and actually bother to extract it from the mine, mine tailings. Uh, so it's already been dug up anyway, but at the moment people just chuck it down into the uh, tailing stem, which is not great. So in terms of the energy that is required to produce it, I think it's, it's quite similar to aluminum uh, in terms of the chemistry. So it's definitely an energy intensive process. But uh, the good thing is uh, for our operation, if you would buy a ton of gallium, you can basically keep using it over and over again. You will just turn it around. So it's not something that would be consumable. Yeah, definitely. So one off energy investment and obviously cost investment. And then over, like, do you have any idea how long it would last? That's a good question. I mean, we're at the beginning here. So as I said, we are working with a shoebox. We've got to go into <laughs> that bigger operation first and show it's all stacking up, then operate it for longer terms uh, to see how it works. That's the process uh, that we're in right now. So uh, we start kicking off that project in March. And then over the next few years, we're going to work on it and uh, make sure it works. Fabulous. And when you do have that whole shipping container size version, that's going to make for some pretty awesome optics. Like that will look cool. Yeah, I hope so. I think talking about optics, I think just working with the molten metals is already cool. So. <laughs> yeah. Just makes me happy. You're starting at a very cool baseline. And then on top of that, you know, you're saving the world. So it looks cool and it does cool stuff. Isn't that like some sort of golden combo that people shoot for? Yeah. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Obviously, you know, a lot of cool things and have played around with cool stuff. What does an average day at work look like for you? Good question. <laughs> I think uh, usually it used to be... You know, Back in the day as a PhD student or as a postdoc, I would spend a lot of time, of course, in the lab and do the work myself and uh, uh, do the experiments. Uh, nowadays, I'm uh, more office-based, partially by choice. So it's not entirely that I, uh, I want to spend all days in the lab anymore and struggle with experiments. So to some degree, I'm, I'm happy that I'm more in, a, in a, a, a management role, I guess, now in the group. So most of the days I would rock up early in the morning and have a few coffees and then uh, deal with students' uh, requests, lots and lots of emails, unfortunately, way too many emails. And teaching preparation when the semester is on, uh, then I've got a lot of milestone presentations, as we call them here, where the PhD students in the entire department, they've got to do annual reports and presentations, so I usually look after them and... I uh, have to chair all of these meetings, so I do a lot of these things. So it's a mixture of lots of meetings, presentations, basically a form of oral exams that I've got to do a lot uh, with people. And uh, then I'll normally duck into the lab once or twice, once before lunch, once after lunch, just to check on the student, make sure everything's fine and that the lab is not on fire. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, yeah, finish off at the end of the day. Doesn't sound too bad. It sounds fairly standard academic. Yeah. I know. You don't get to do the cool stuff all the time. No, no. I think you do the cool stuff as a PhD student, as a postdoc. I think that's when you are in the lab and doing stuff. And now I do more of the uh, directing and, you know, you, you share the enthusiasm and the excitement when things work. You write up a paper, you celebrate the wins, you publish something, and uh, sometimes things don't work out and that's okay. Help people learn from it and not beat themselves up because their experiment didn't work. 
exactly. How have you ended up here? Like what was your path from high school to where you are now? Was chemical engineering always the plan? was a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. And a lot of it is just, you know, life just happens, you know. And uh, you can probably tell by my accent, I grew up in Germany. So grew up over there, went to undergrad in Germany and did sort of a combined degree, which was sort of a mishmash of chemistry, a little bit of engineering and a bit of business. Interesting mix. I thought it was a, a really cool degree that they offered uh, um, over there. And uh, as part of that degree, I came over to Australia for an, an exchange semester at Swinburne and had a great time at Swinburne. I mean, Glen Ferry, Hawthorne, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful place and uh, had a really awesome time there as an international student. And that's where I met my wife. So I decided to come back and do a PhD here, uh, managed to secure a PhD position at Monash, and uh, that was on electrochemical photovoltaics, uh, which not many people do anymore, but back then that was all the rage, and did a short postdoc at CSRO, then came to RMIT, and that's sort of uh, how it moved throughout. So I was always uh, working on the environmental side of things. So when I was working on the photovoltaics, of course, it's, you know, solar energy, which is uh, has sort of a green edge to it. With the electronics work that we've been doing, it's all about making better electronics that use less energy and also have less polluting pathways to making electronic materials. So that's sort of the mission there. And uh, with the catalysis, it's, of course, getting rid of uh, big pollutants or turning pollutants into useful materials. That's an awesome, like, it's always good to have a thread that follows through your career and even if you end up doing different things if there's some sort of like logical thread there it sort of helps hold it together have you ever used any of the stuff that was in the business side of that course not really until now to be honest so we are right now for the first time in my career really working with industry partners which i'm really excited about and from that business course back then uh, they sort of teach you the very basics on, you know, how to set up the corporate sort of agreements, how business thinks and so on. And uh, having had that uh, background is quite helpful in a way, but it's not, not required. I would say I slowly start to use it uh, some 15 years or later. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's even just having like a little bit there at the back of your mind and knowing some of the words like that can help. How are you finding working with industry as opposed to like living in quite an academic world? Like, is there big cultural differences, small cultural differences? It's like, is there anything that's sort of like, wow, I, I never would have thought like that? I think working with industry, I find really refreshing in a way because in academia, if you go through the classic funding agencies, you know, you go to the ARC, you write your 100-page proposal, and uh, then in the end, you may or may not get it. It's very, very critical, and it really tends to take the fun out of things. Uh, with industry, it is just so refreshingly simple. You basically have a conversation, you talk to a real human, and uh, you bounce off ideas and say, look, we want to do this. And if they're excited about it and uh, 
they share your vision, then it's much, much more straightforward. Uh, they just say, look, let's do it and set up an agreement and uh, start the work. So what I really enjoy about working with industry is that it's so much less complicated. They just want to get stuff done. They want to do it. They don't care about 100-page proposals. They just want to get the 20-minute uh, sort of summary, maybe over a cup of coffee, and then that's often enough. And that's really good. How did you find your current industry partner? Like, did you go out there looking for people? Did they approach you? I'm just sort of thinking, like, if there's other academics listening who are like, oh, maybe there is an industry opportunity out there for me. Like, how do you instigate that in the first place? For me, what actually really worked well is whenever we have a research publication where we believe that the general public might be interested, we actually reach out to our media team. And uh, I talk to the university's media team who are usually excited, particularly for younger academics. Uh, they really like to not always highlight the same person. And here at RMIT, at least, they've been extraordinarily helpful. So they help you to write a press release. They get you in contact with the right media people. And they basically run the whole thing for you. Yeah. So you just, uh, they know what they're doing and you're in safe hands and they just look after it. And then you end up having a press release and media usually cares. They always, whatever you do, uh, somebody around the globe will find it exciting and write a little story about it. Maybe invite you to do a little bit of a radio interview, a, a podcast, a little a blog post or whatever. And people read them. And later on, industry comes to you. And that's what happens for us. So we had a few press releases on these topics. And then it turns out that somebody that is uh, literally just living probably a few suburbs away from us, so they're also from Melbourne, read that story, thought, hey, I can actually use this. And uh, that's how we started the conversation. And uh, a year later or so, we've got a funding agreement and we're about to hire a team and get going with it. So it's really about using media effectively and getting the word out. Uh, there's no way that uh, you will know the industry partner already. I think the world is a big place and you might know the big companies, the Facebooks and Amazons and so on. You know those, but you're not going to talk to them. Uh, the people you actually want to talk to are the small, uh, medium-sized enterprises that share your vision and want to make it happen. And those ones, they find you if you get the word out. That's really interesting. And especially right now, it feels like we're, or maybe it's just the world I live in, but we're in like this world of startups and the chance of you as an academic, like you have to keep on top of a lot of other stuff and trying to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in startup land as well is, that's quite hard. But often these companies do have a little bit of spare cash floating around, especially if they've just received their round of funding or A or B round. Yeah. And uh, when you compare this uh, realistically, if you're looking at ARC funding and uh, let's say you want to have a big project and you need a million dollars. We might just pause and explain what ARC is because not everyone listening. Okay. So if you're looking uh, in Australia, the main government uh, research funding body is the Australian Research Council. And uh, as an academic for basic research or even industry focused sort of commercialization research, a lot of it goes via the ARC or the Australian Research Council. And 
if you want to run a project and you want to hire a little team and do a bit of work to see if a technology will work or not, you might go to the ARC and ask them for, let's say, a million dollars, which would be a very large grant. And then you will have to write probably a 100, 150 page proposal and it gets peer reviewed. It takes about a year. And then now a little bit of an insider joke on Christmas Eve, they tell you that you're ineligible or not, I guess, as happened last year. It can be quite a grueling experience. And if you go to industry, particularly the sort of mid-sized companies, if they like what you're doing, a million dollar doesn't hurt them. So they, uh, they've got the money and they can just decide to fund you straight away. It's so much less complicated. Yeah, and much shorter proposals and much quicker turnaround time for them to tell you, no, we're not interested. Well, yes, yes, we are. Mm. Exactly. A bit less crashing. A lot less crashing. And uh, they will tell you after the first meeting, uh, oh, thank you very much, this was interesting, but uh, maybe not. And then you don't waste your time anymore, which is really good. You don't write the 150-page proposal. Yeah, you don't start with that bit. As an outsider, that whole thing just blows my mind that that is how so many people function. Anyhow, <laughs> thank you for those insights. I think they're quite helpful. And I'd just like to remind listeners, if you happen to be the founder of a startup or working at a startup and you think maybe they're like, this is something you're, you're, something you're doing could be related to something in academia, sniff around and see if you can find an academic. Their emails are usually quite accessible and they're pretty good at replying most of the time. So they're not these like scary people actually in a white tower that you can't talk to. Also, most universities have an uh, industry team which you can actually reach out to and they find the person that does what you need. So we've got an entire team of uh, five people or so that know all of the academics. They know what people do. And if you've got a problem that you think can be solved or needs solving, reach out to them and uh, they will be able to point you in the right direction. It's like a matchmaking service for research problem solving. That's awesome. What is the coolest part of your job? What helps you get up in the morning and go, yes, I'm going to work today? I think it's just the enthusiasm of students. <laughs> it's very cheesy, but it's, uh, I just really like it when things work and you do cool science and people are passionate about what they're doing. It's just an awesome vibe if things are going well. Also, when things are not going well, it's okay, it happens. But <laughs> I think that uh, working with people on these projects one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I think it's really cool. And the excitement of finding something new and knowing you helped a student do that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Finding materials and looking at them where you know that you're the first person that ever made it, I think that's really awesome. It's not even just discovering something. You get to hold the thing in your hand and poke it around a desk. Exactly. Yeah. What advice would you give to a young person, whether they're at high school or maybe some of your students, about taking a path in this kind of career? Have you got any advice for, say, young Torben? <laughs> for young Torben? I would say a PhD is, or doing a PhD was great fun. So don't overthink it. If you love research, then do a PhD or master's. I think it's going to come in handy. If you want to become an academic, great. If you don't want to become an academic, also great. Lots of jobs are out there and it's a great way to either get a job in Australia or go overseas. It's essentially 
an entry ticket into research-based careers. And there's many, many different ones. Also, don't be too set on having an academic career. So if you do enjoy the whole mentorship thing and teaching and you uh, don't mind the, you know, applying for grants and that sort of stuff, then have an academic career, pursue it. Fantastic. But if that's not your cup of tea, do your PhD, enjoy it, have a great time and then take it to an industry career or something like that. So there's so many different options. Don't overthink it and do something you're passionate about. I think that's the most important thing. Before you sign up, basically interview the academic as much as they interview you. You want to make sure you get along. Uh, you see every now and then you hear these uh, horror stories where people just don't talk properly to each other. They're just not on the same wavelength and it just doesn't work. And that's uh, three and a half years of a PhD is a long time to spend with somebody you don't like. So make sure that you get along and it's a topic you're passionate about it and you will have a great time. I think that's really good advice. So you as a student are allowed to make sure that the environment you're going into is the right one for you. It's not just like you're gifted something or you're offered a place, but you're allowed to find out if that place you're going to fit in there. I always say interview your own boss. So make sure, <laughs> make sure you ask them questions and see that you get along. Yeah. Have you got a favorite question that you ask or you'd encourage people to ask? I think I'm normally more on the other end to be now, to be honest now. So I, I usually just get a wipe, have a conversation and just see how you, how you get along. If you can talk to each other and uh, if it's all pleasant, then usually it's, it's okay. What people want to get out of it, why they want to do a PhD is an important question. If your reason to do a PhD is uh, to get two letters and a dot, then it's probably not good. There should be a bit more than that. Not just because uh, your uncle had a PhD and you want to beat him or something like that. Yeah, you just really want that title. Yeah, no, that's an incredibly hard thing to do. Yeah. That won't keep you going. Is there any citizen science in the work that you're doing? Like, is there any way that people who don't have a PhD can be involved? I think it really depends. Uh, we had a few, I think, interns, high school students. We had people like that that joined us. And then it's, it's really more sort of something that we do, you know, find some... Uh, Simple work, uh, little sub-projects, you know, making something, designing something, I don't know. Things like that, uh, that that we do sometimes. So we've done things like that. But it's it's not like, uh, let's say, biology, where you can go into your garden and uh, count the frogs. So we can't do that. So it's, uh, we do need to have access to fancy equipment like uh, electron microscopes and so on. And not everybody has that in the garage. So, yeah, we've got the occasional intern that joins us for summer or winter sort of projects over the semester break, I guess. Undergrad students as well that uh, sometimes join us. And that's a great way of younger people getting a sampler and seeing if this is even vaguely a path that they're interested in. That's always exactly. good. Exactly. And that's a general thing. I mean, you don't really know until you tried it whether research is for you and whether particularly chemistry and uh, chemical engineering research is, is a thing for you. In the end, at least in Germany, and we never really experienced in high school 
the thing where you go into the lab and you just cook something, you play with chemicals, you make something. So I never got to do that before I actually uh, joined up university. And then I was lucky that I loved it. So, but a lot of people I talk to, uh, they are quite scared of chemistry uh, because maybe they were not that good at it in high school and so on. But uh, practical chemistry in the lab is actually a lot like cooking, really. I mean, probably you shouldn't eat it normally, but uh, that, that's the main difference. I think you you go into the lab, you you put the different ingredients in it, you play with different recipes, trying to fine tune them, make materials, and uh, then use them for whatever you're working on. And that's a good way to think about it. It's a lot like cooking. It's very practical. And usually you work in a team, so you've got great fun. Probably doesn't smell as good, but... Well, it depends what you're doing, yeah. Our stuff is not too smelly. Sometimes it's bad, yeah. <laughs> okay, other than the chemistry thing, are there any other misconceptions or myths that are out there that you sort of bump into related to your work that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust? I think for my particular work in the environmental sort of field, particularly the carbon dioxide field, I... I see that uh, a lot of people, they either say, oh, technology is going to solve it all, or they're going to say, oh, technology is useless and we're all doomed. And I think the middle ground is probably uh, where the reality sits. Whatever we're doing is not going to be a silver bullet. So we as a society, we, we need to continue to get rid of coal-fired power and gas-fired power and so on. And uh, then we have to come up with uh, technologies to, to address these really stubborn uh, bits of emissions, I guess. So that's the main thing uh, that we are working towards. So uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around that. Uh, when it comes to chemical engineering, a lot of people have this misconception that chemical engineering is all oil and gas. And uh, when you become a chemical engineer, you sit on an oil rig and <laughs> make uh, turn petrol into plastic or something. Yes, yeah, some people do that, but the vast majority of chemical engineers ends up doing other things like uh, providing clean water, for example, is chemical engineering and looking after waste materials. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of jobs in mining and in oil and gas, but it's very, very diverse. Some of my colleagues here uh, developing new materials for biological applications. So it's a really, really diverse field. Uh, one of our colleagues is making polymers that can mimic, for example, cartilage uh, for, for joints and uh, these sort of things. Who would have thought that that's chemical engineering, but it is. Okay, so two myths there. Uh, chemical engineering isn't just oil and gas. It can be anything. It sounds like sort of from medicine-ish to obviously clean water and environmental. Stuff? can be anything, but it can be oil and gas. <laughs> it can be anything. All of the materials we use in our daily life uh, have been produced somewhere. And there's a lot of chemical engineering that goes into making any material. So what, whatever you use at home, whatever material you use, or whatever you purchase in the shops, chances are a chemical engineer had a hand in its creation. So I like it. And, you know, just take a moment, listeners, have a look around you. And just appreciate the work of the chemical engineers, meaning that the chair that you can sit on, your shoes, probably the soles of your shoes, all these things at some point have probably been touched by this field of research. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you would like to share? Look, I think <laughs> I really enjoyed my chat here with you. And no, nothing specific right now. I think, uh, yeah, reach out. 
if you're uh, just keen to have a chat. I mean, I'm always keen to hear from people, their ideas and so on. And yeah. Have a chat. Talk to your academics people. They are not prickly octopuses who you can't talk to. Like they're very open to yeah, all sorts of people, including you, because you're awesome because you listen to this podcast. Before we finish up, have you got a shout out, a virtual high five for someone who thinks doing an awesome job and all the listeners should give virtual high fives to? Uh, well, I think my virtual high five, it would go probably to my students because they're amazing. So they do the hard work. I just talk about it at the moment, at least. <laughs> so they're the ones in the labs that, that do the hard work and have all of the excitement, but also the uh, setbacks and deal with the setbacks when stuff doesn't work. And big shout out to them for the fantastic work that they're doing. Yeah. And extra high fives to them for managing to do it during a pandemic because it's been tough. It has been pretty tough. To put that into perspective, I think a lot of our students are from overseas and uh, a lot of them, including me myself, we, we haven't seen our families in two years or three years and that's not easy. And then being in a different country and uh, not being able to actually go into the lab and work on your PhD that you're here to do for months at end is difficult. So some of them really struggled in the end. Uh, they still did a great job and everybody's doing well in their academic career. And I can't be, couldn't be more proud of, of leading uh, such a brilliant bunch of people here. Lots of virtual high fives then. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Torben. It has been absolutely delightful. I've got a bit more hope for the future and learned more about liquid metals. So thank you so much for coming and sharing. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this was great fun. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee painting. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.